Please open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. Today we're going to be reading Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 29 and we'll be meditating on that portion of Scripture as well. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans and when we were last in Romans we were of course in Romans chapter 8, a portion of Scripture where God really or where Paul really focused on who we are in Christ, um, what our identity is uh, we are his children and so forth and and in there he introduced this idea of of calling and foreknowledge and predestination especially toward the end of that chapter and now as we go to chapter 9 he's going to uh, deal with the topic of election and answer a question that was on the heart of those who were around him at the time With that introduction, we'll read Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved." And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we would ask, Lord, that as we sit here before you this morning and meditate on your word, you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow as disciples. And we do pray, Lord, um, that you would do a work in our heart. And so, Lord, we would ask you, what are you telling me? Lord, we, we would ask that you would speak to us. We would ask that you would give us ears to hear and that you would help us. Uh, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as human beings, we're constantly analyzing things, aren't we? Especially when it comes to our plans, we often look at our plans and we try to assess them and we ask ourselves, are they good plans? Um, Am I on track? Is everything going according to my plan? Am I going to achieve my goal or, or have I failed? Has my plan failed? Well, as Romans 9 opens, the big question is this, has God's word failed? The question is asked because of Israel. The question the apostle Paul continued to face was this, what's Israel's place within the promise and purpose of God? Didn't God promise to send the Messiah to Israel to bless his people? If so, then why is the church largely largely made up of Gentile believers? Consider how Paul answers in verse six. He writes, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God hasn't failed. The word of God is trustworthy and true. It's impossible for the word of God to fail. 
They're God's words, and God cannot fail. Paul goes on to defend the idea that God's word has not failed by explaining God's sovereign purpose in redemptive history. He does this by expounding upon God's election, his divine justice and mercy, and his all-inclusive plan of salvation. And Paul begins by expressing his burden for unbelieving Israel. It's here that we begin to see God's purposeful election. That's our first heading, God's purposeful election. Paul expresses profound grief and anguish regarding the spiritual condition of his fellow Jews, particularly those who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. In verse one, you see that he writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's use of such strong language reflects the deep emotional burden he carries for their salvation. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And then he says that he would be willing to endure eternal separation from God if it would mean that his fellow Jews could experience salvation. He'd be willing to trade places with unbelieving Jews who stood under condemnation. He had a Christ-like heart for the lost. In verses five, Paul lists the great privileges that Israel had experienced in salvation history. God had adopted them as a nation. God revealed his glory to them. He had given them the covenants. He gave them his law. They had the privilege of coming into his presence and worshiping him. They were given the promises, the great promise of the coming Messiah. They're the people from whom Christ came. They had the patriarchs. And notice in verse five, Paul says that the Christ is God. It's one of the clearest places in Scripture that says it plainly, Jesus Christ is God. God manifested in the flesh. Well, Israel had all of this and yet they did not believe in Jesus. And then in verse six, Paul states his main idea. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he gives the explanation, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You see, the word hasn't failed. Paul's addressing a crucial theological point related to the true nature of God's chosen people. 
Belonging to God's chosen people isn't determined by physical descent or lineage. Being born into the physical lineage of Israel doesn't automatically guarantee a place among God's chosen people. Being a biological descendant of Abraham is insufficient for being considered a true child of Abraham in the spiritual sense. To be a spiritual child of Abraham, one must exhibit faith and align with the promises and covenant of God made with Abraham. It's important to stop here because we are an extension of that community, are we not? We are a covenant community. And when we're born in the church, especially for you uh, little ones or even others, we shouldn't rest the hope of our salvation in the fact that, well, I was born to Christian parents and even grandparents and great-grandparents before them, I was baptized, I've always been in church. No, our salvation is in Christ and him alone. We each personally need to discover and realize that we're sinners, that we need a savior, that Christ is my savior, and make that moment, that decision where we lay down our lives to follow him as our Lord, as our savior. And notice how verse seven ends. Paul points us back to the book of Genesis to make a specific theological point. His intention is to illustrate that God's choice in election is based on his divine purpose and sovereignty rather than human merit or lineage. Paul writes, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul reminds us of Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham, of course, had two sons. But God's covenant was established through Isaac, not Ishmael. God's telling Abraham that through Isaac, his offspring shall be named. And this serves to demonstrate Paul's argument. God's election of Isaac as the child of promise, even though he wasn't the eldest or the natural choice according to human logic, highlights that God's choices are not bound by human norms or exceptions. God's election is based on his divine purpose and his sovereign will. But someone might be tempted to think, well, it's because of Ishmael's status that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. After all, he was born to Hagar, the Egyptian maid. So Paul presses home the point that salvation has nothing to do with status or works, or ethnicity, but rather it comes down to God's grace. In verse 10, he writes, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul points us back to Jacob and Esau, who not only had the same mother, but they also had the same father, Isaac. They were twins. Just in case of, just as in the case of Isaac and Ishmael, Paul uses Jacob and Esau to highlight God's sovereign choice in determining the recipients of his blessings and promises. Jacob was chosen to receive God's love and favor, while Esau was not. Paul emphasizes that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was made before, the, before they were born and before they had done anything good or bad. This underscores that God's election is not dependent on human deeds, but is a result, again, of his purpose and his calling. Well, all of this raises many questions, and Paul anticipates that, so he turns our attention towards God's divine justice and mercy. That's our second heading, God's divine justice and mercy. I was baptized as a baby, and I was raised in the church, but I didn't come to salvation until I was 18. And it's at that point when I had prayed and given my life to Christ that the scriptures came alive. They came alive in a new way, a new and a profound way. And I was so excited to learn everything I could about God. It was, it was all brand new. The whole world was changed. I saw the whole world in a new light and I couldn't, I couldn't consume it fast enough. I was reading and reading and soon afterward, I was confronted with the doctrine of election. What are, what are we talking about when we talk about the doctrine of election? What is this doctrine? Election is God's purpose regarding the redemption of people. Election is the sovereign, eternal purpose of God to save certain people through his gracious work in Christ. And election is unconditional. It's not based on foreknowledge of people's faith and good works. No, it's grounded in God's good pleasure. Election is closely related to the doctrine of predestination. It asserts that before the foundation of the world, God predestined certain individuals to be saved and to receive his grace. And as we've seen in Paul's illustrations, God's choice is not based on anything inherent in the individual, such as good deeds or, again, faith or human effort. Instead, God's choice is solely according to his will and purpose. I remember 
I remember being confused by this doctrine. I, I was troubled by it. I remember being taken aback. I, I had to wrestle with it, and I wrestled with it for weeks. And people around me uh, wrestled um, with me, whether they wanted to or not. And, and Paul, like a good teacher, anticipates this. He anticipates questions. In, in verse 14, he asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he emphatically answers, by no means. By, by no means. Paul cannot fathom the thought of God being unjust. The judge of all the earth always, he always does what's right. The Bible consistently affirms the character of God as perfectly just, perfectly just. And I knew that, I knew that even as a brand new Christian, I knew that. What I came to find out though is that my confusion was rooted in my doctrine of man. What I thought about the nature of man and this tendency to think that in some sense he was, had some innocency to him. But things became clear when I began to understand that as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden, every aspect of human nature had been tainted and affected by sin. Adam's sin introduced physical death and decay into the world, but his sin also resulted in the corruption and spiritual death of all humanity, right? Adam represented humanity as our federal head, and when he fell, his sin was imputed to all his children, me and you, all of us. Human nature is tainted by sin. Sin has affected the whole person, including the mind and the heart and the body. The mind is affected in terms of its ability to fully comprehend and to accept, accept spiritual truths without the work of the Holy Spirit. The heart representing the inner desires and affections of a person is corrupted by sinful inclinations and selfishness. And the body, as part of fallen creation, experiences the effects of sin, even in various different ways, including suffering, sickness, and eventually death. The effects of sin on human nature are manifold. It has led to spiritual death and separation from God. Scripture says we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We're born in bondage to sin and that we are unable to save ourselves. Humanity needs divine intervention and regeneration to restore a personal relationship with God. In John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. As a new believer, what I didn't understand was that without God's intervention, no one would believe. They wouldn't want to believe. They're spiritually dead. 
And they also came to realize that if God gave humanity what it deserved, it would mean that every individual would face the full consequences of their sin. In verses 15 through 18, Paul points to the book of Exodus concerning God's mercy expressed to Moses and God's judgment on Pharaoh to address the issue of God's justice. Look at, look at verse 15 with me. In verse 15, Paul writes, for he, that is God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, that is salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's point here is to demonstrate God's sovereign freedom in extending mercy He's making the point that God's mercy is not obligated to anyone but is an expression of his gracious and sovereign prerogative. You see, far from being unjust, God is merciful, he's gracious, and he's compassionate. No one deserves God's saving mercy. So if you are in Christ, you should praise him in humility and in awe. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. Why does God extend mercy to anyone? Why does he give grace, his unmerited favor? Why would he provide his son as a sacrifice to save us. It's incredible. What a marvel that he would save any of us. We don't deserve anything from God except judgment. If anyone is lost, the responsibility rests with them. However, However, if anyone finds salvation, all credit goes to God. And we see that salvation extends beyond the borders of Israel. As the text continues, we see God's all-inclusive plan. That's our third heading, God's all-inclusive plan. Well, these are heavy matters. They're heavy matters, they're weighty. And, and Paul anticipated follow-up questions. In verse 19, you'll see that he writes, you will, say to, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But you'll notice that Paul appears to disregard the questions asked in verse 19 because he wants to shift the focus from human objections or questions to God's choices and the concept of God's sovereignty. In verse 20, he writes, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul wants his readers to grasp the fundamental truth about God's sovereignty. So he emphasizes that God has the right to mold and shape his creation as he sees fit, just as a potter has the authority to fashion vessels from clay. In this analogy, some vessels are made for honorable use while others are made for dishonorable use, illustrating God's prerogative to determine the roles and destinies of individuals. Ultimately, Paul's purpose is to affirm God's perfect wisdom and righteousness in his choices and to remind his readers of the limitations of human understanding when it comes to comprehending the ways of the Almighty. It's a call to trust in God's wisdom, sovereignty, and righteousness, even when his ways may seem beyond human comprehension. In verse 22, Paul continues, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Paul's point is to emphasize the wisdom of the sovereignty of God in his dealings with both vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. He wants his readers to understand that God's sovereignty encompasses both his righteous judgment and his gracious salvation. God's choices are in line with his purpose and divine plan, revealing his glory in both judgment and salvation. And you'll notice what Paul says about the vessels of mercy. Paul writes, what if God desires to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And here he's getting to answering, has God's word failed? No, And then in the following verses, Paul references more Old Testament text to illustrate how both believing Jews and Gentiles are part of God's chosen people. From the beginning, God's election of Israel and the preservation of a remnant had a broader perspective in mind, the inclusion of Gentile believers from every nation. In verse 25, Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea to illustrate God's saving purpose. Look what he says. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where, I, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. By God's gracious call, outsiders are made insiders and strangers are made family. 
Consider your status, Christian. What does he say about you? Beloved. You're my beloved. You're my people. You're my sons and my daughters. And all by God's sovereign grace. Paul then uses the prophet Isaiah to explain the inclusion of a Jewish remnant into the people of God. In verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul quotes this passage to emphasize that not all Israel is included in God's plan of salvation. Just as in Isaiah's time where only a remnant was left after judgment, Paul is making the point that God's chosen people are not solely defined by physical lineage, but by his sovereign election. By using both Hosea and Isaiah, Paul shows that God has called both Jew and Gentile to himself. God preserved a remnant of Jewish believers within Israel and then he expanded it to include Gentiles as well. This proves Paul's thesis that God's word has not failed and that salvation is a work of God's sovereign grace and mercy. Well, what should we, what should we take away from a weighty chapter like this? How can we live this? How can we apply what we learn here to our lives? First, share Paul's burden. Share Paul's burden. We saw that Paul was willing to give up his life for the conversion of Israel. We should feel compassion for those that are without Christ. Pray for the lost. Don't give up on your family and friends that are unbelievers. Continue to pray for them and share the gospel to the best of your ability. Speak of Christ. Second, let's not waver in our trust in God's word. Our text today reaffirms that God's word never falters. We can have unwavering confidence in it. We can trust God's word. Third, consider how reflecting on God's sovereignty can strengthen your faith. As a Christian, you can find rest in God's sovereignty as you walk by faith. Knowing that God's in control, you don't have to be anxious. You're going to be anxious, but you can preach to yourself, you could remind yourself God is in control of every single thing, even the numbers of hairs on your head, everything. Trust him with every aspect of your life. Lastly, how do you know if you're one of the chosen ones? Believe. 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 
from the heart. Embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you believe, well, now you know why. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these are indeed weighty things. And Lord, you know we're finite. And we're prone to think, well, if people are chosen, why do I need to pray for them? If people are just elect, why do I need to share the gospel? Oh, but Lord, ours is not to know your ways, but to do what you say, to follow you. You tell us to pray. You tell us to share your word. You tell us to trust you, to, to follow you, to be obedient. Oh, Lord, help us. I do pray that you would help us to understand and embrace your sovereignty, that we might be blessed by it, Lord. You are good, and we would lift up our loved ones, our family and friends before you this day, and we would pray that you would intercede. Lord, we remember how you did that with Paul. You just interceded on the road to Damascus. We'd lift up those that are lost in our lives, and we'd ask, oh, Lord, that you would intercede that you would make them alive again, that they would embrace you and love you and follow you. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. We'd ask it in Christ's name, amen.